Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Having played a predominant role in the development of Western civilization, Catholicism remains one of the oldest and largest continuously functioning international institutions. Hi, I'm Reverend Rob Way from the United Palace of Spiritual Arts, here with my co-host, Reverend Dr. Jose Roman. On today's episode, we will explore Catholicism with Father Michael Holleran. Thank you for joining us. My first question is going to be, what is the Trinity? But before I, I even say that, I want to point out that I, I know you well, Father Michael. You and I have had the opportunity to converse many times. I've actually sat in many of your teachings. And I know that you have a special affinity for the mystical tradition of the Catholic faith. And so as we explore the uh, the Holy Trinity with you, what we will in fact be exploring is that mystery from a mystical tradition, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, the, um, I have a, a tendency to that. It's my, it's my experience. It's my uh, history being a contemplative monk or religious uh, as well as a priest. Uh, I have a special affinity and I think calling uh, to that particular dimension. But I also think it's distinctive of the, of the, of the Roman Catholic tradition itself, that it always has and continues to put a special emphasis on, on, on the mystery, on the mystery of God in its liturgical, uh, liturgical uh, actions and its uh, theology and its spirituality. So, uh, so I think that's maybe a, a, itself a characteristic of the Roman Catholic tradition, putting the emphasis there on, on the unspeakable and the ineffable, I should say. Yeah. Well, we'll explore more of that yes. um, a little bit later, especially your relationship to that. So now, from a mystical tradition, what in fact is the Holy Trinity. Well, first of all, it should be said that you know there, there is only one God. It's not three gods. That's you know tritheism, as as we called it. The church, the church spent the first couple of hundred years, especially, uh, trying to uh, articulate exactly what it uh, what it meant by the Trinity, how how the persons, who they were, and how they interacted, uh, what their relationship was. Um, the word Trinity itself uh, didn't uh, was not was not a, uh, does not appear until the, the year two hundred, uh, but the the interrelationships, the dynamism. So, we the, the Christian community realized that this dimension of God, this uh, this uh, trinitarian dimension, uh, through its experience of Jesus. So it had such a profound experience of the presence of God and the dynamic action of God in Christ, in his life, in his resurrection, uh, that uh, and in his reflection on its its relation with Christ, it realized that this is is God in the world. This is God manifest in the world. This man speaking was actually the face of God, the action of God, the voice of God in the world. Uh, 
So uh, there was this notion of the Father, and Jesus himself referred to the Father, was in continual relation with the Father, addressed God as Father. Um, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in the New Testament, the beginning of Paul's uh, letters. Um, so uh, there was the God, we might, uh, from a mystical dimension, God, the unmanifest, from whom everything comes. That ineffable uh, Father that can never be defined, the ultimate mystery, the unmanifest God. But then God manifest in the world, took on the, was the face of Christ. And then in John's gospel, that became, you know, the, the logos, the word of God expressed. There was also the son of God, another way of saying it, the son and the father. Uh, so that articulated relationship then became um, uh, the seed of the understanding of the Trinity. Um, and then we always, always spoke immediately of the, the spirit of God, the spirit of God and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that was uh, the that was the dynamism, the, the actual love that, uh, from the Father to the Son. Uh, that was the the energy of God expressed into the world uh, and operative in the life of Christ. That was op- was the operative in his incarnation, operative in his resurrection, operative throughout all his life, inspiring everything he did. And then his his followers likewise participate in that relationship. In Christ, they become children of the Father. They participate in that spirit. Uh, they uh, are called to be dynamic in the world and to do the works of the Christ in the world. Uh, as he says himself, greater works than these uh, will you do, you know, um, of you who uh, believe in me. Uh, so it was especially understood and lived. It was lived before it was understood, as everything should be. <laughs> um, as, as, a, as a dynamic relationship. And that what's especially wonderful about it, you know, for our contemporary world and, you know, for our, for our, our spirituality is that it, God is dynamic and God is relational. Intra-divine relationship within the Godhead itself, within God itself, uh, there's a, a dynamism, there's a pouring out of love, a gift of father to son in the spirit. And that's expressed in the world, uh, not only the incarnation, but already in the creation. Uh, some some spiritual writers uh, like Richard Rohr are saying that the first incarnation is actually the Big Bang. Right. You know, the first manifestation of God, of the mystery of God in the world is creation itself. And St. Bernard in the Middle Ages said, you know, the first Bible is creation. So, as has been said very well by Richard, uh, Richard Rohr, don't give the second Bible to someone who doesn't, can't read the first one. <laughs> Otherwise, that's dangerous. So, in other words, see the mystery of God, the, the God expressed in the world. Uh, through the word, all things were made, as John's prologue says, you know, without him was not made anything that was made. So uh, that's already an expression of manifestation of God, God's word uh, in the world. And then the manifestation of God's word in the world in the human, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and then that denied dynamism of the spirit. So it's an evolutionary process. And this is another element. So if there's a di- di- that dynamism in God, relationship and love are central and the evolution of creation into the redemption and the cosmos to the final fulfillment, um, that evolutionary process is very dynamic and it's, it's become a major element in, in modern spirituality in the Catholic Church as well. Um, it's fascinating because you said yeah. that relationship and, and love are central. In a sense, God is a relationship. God is relationship. God is love. Of course, that's exactly what John's letter says. Right. God is love. We somehow keep forgetting that or, or minimizing that. Um, but, uh, and, and it goes on to say, you know, whoever loves 
whoever loves, period, not just loves God or whatever, whoever loves uh, knows, is born of God and knows God, which is an astounding statement. Anyone who actually loves is participating in the Trinitarian life and is born of God, is a child of God. Is, 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 is literally participating in God. In God's life, yeah. sharing in the divine nature, as the, as the second letter of Peter says. That's extraordinary. Uh, but central to this understanding was, in fact, Jesus. Yes. So we wouldn't have come to the Trinity without Jesus and an experience of Jesus as the revelation of God, the face of God, the action of God in the world. Yeah. And Reverend Rob, I know you have yes. a question. So within that incarnation, who was Jesus? Oh, <clears throat> what was his relationship to every human person here on earth? Well, that's a that's a good question. Sometimes we give the impression that we well, that you're not connected to Jesus until you're baptized, but that's that comes next. Everyone who is born into this world is connected to to Jesus because all things were created through the Christ. Everything was created through the Word of God, um, or as the letter to the Colossians says, you know, all things were created through Him and for Him. In Him, all things hold together. Um, uh, you know, all things were created th through him and for him. So by the very creation, by our very existence, we're related to Christ. Mm -hmm. um, now, we get the spirit of Jesus and the spirit of Christ. We, we, we're, we're kind of plugged in, you might say. I like to call it plugging into the Christmas lights. We're, 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 <laughs> we're plugged into the energy of, the, of Christ and to the, to, to the power of the spirit by baptism. But Jesus is intrinsically related to every human being that ever lived, before, now, or in the future, he is already related to them. When you say Jesus, you're speaking of the Jesus. The risen Christ. The risen yeah. Christ. The risen yeah. Christ. So it's literally, it's not Jesus necessarily the historical person, per se, but it's really this, if, what people call Christ consciousness. Is that correct? Yes, but it's, it's important to, to emphasize. We are talking about the humanity of Jesus of Nazareth, mm. but it's the risen humanity, the transformed humanity, ah. which is the fullness of the Christ consciousness, the, uh, Paul has a, at the beginning of the letter to the Romans has an interesting phrase. He was appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, the human Jesus entered into the fullness of his identity as the eternal Christ. His humanity did at the moment of the resurrection. Uh, so it's that Christ and that consciousness, that Christ consciousness, which we're all called to share, by the way, and uh -huh. to be transformed into, um, uh, that is now immediately in, related to everyone who ever lived. So that is the incarnation. Right? Well, the incarnation, you know, we normally refer to it as, as uh, the, well, the moment of his coming into the womb of Mary, the, uh, the eternal word. And then, then there's the birth of Christ. We celebrated Christmas, the physical birth from Mary. Um, uh, but uh, but so, some are using the language now, that first incarnation being that first manifestation of, of God in, in creation. And then the second one, uh, the more traditional one, you might say, uh, being in, in, in the person of Jesus. Um, what is the atonement? Well, <laughs> the atonement, or, or as many like to say now, at-one-ment. At-one-ment. Hmm. We're brought back into union, to oneness with God from our state of being, as you can see, just looking within you or around you, our state of being, you know, dispersed and distracted and pulled in all sorts of directions and making bad decisions, etc. Um, but I think, and this is this is the uh, this uh, this is something that Sister Elizabeth Johnson, one of the greatest of our contemporary theologians uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, in her many books, 
Uh, she wrote a book called Creation and the Cross just before she retired uh, two years ago now, um, in which she says the common, very common, un unexamined, unquestioned understanding is that somehow God was mad at us. Mm -hmm. And he was so mad that the only uh, the only remedy for the, his les majesté, you know, his wounded divinity, would be uh, the blood shed of a God-man. You know, Jesus had to come, you know, he had to be human so that he could redeem us, uh, stand in for us, but he had to be divine so that the... Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the atonement was his sacrifice on the cross. Yeah, the atonement would be, you know, at, at, the, at the level of, of, of divinity. Um, but God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God, God's mind didn't mean changing. God always loved us. God always has loved, like the, like the prodigal father waiting for the return of the prodigal son. God's mind didn't mean changing. Our mind needed changing about who God was. So when we see God coming among us and sharing our humanity, wow, that's already fantastic. As Paul says, he emptied himself, did not consider uh, God had something to be grasped with, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and appearing in likeness as, as a man. He emptied himself even further. He, he, uh, uh, by 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 dying dying on the cross and the death of the cross was look I'm sharing you I'm taking on in my relationship in my relationship of love with you I'm taking on all your suffering and all your sin and all your fear and all your doubt I'm taking that on I, I'm taking it on in and I'm absorbing I'm absorbing it in myself in a spirit of love and solidarity and God is through me taking it on in a spirit of love and solidarity. And I'm transforming it by my forgiveness, by my compassion, by my love, by my uh, uh, trust in God. And that's transforming human life. He submitted to the most cruel and horrible and unjust death, the worst we can inflict, maybe as a sign, look, this is what you do to God. When God comes into the world, this is what happens. This is what you do to a God. Um, that's one of the lessons. But I am taking that and I'm transforming that and I'm saying I'm transforming the worst thing into the best thing by absorbing, metabolizing all the suffering and all the evil and all the sin and transforming it through my compassion, through my forgiveness, through my love, which mirrors that of the Father. Uh, and I'm, and best of all, or, or, or as a crowning, crowning touch, I'm destroying death your worst fear and your worst suffering uh, by rising from the dead. So once, and this is something Richard War points out very well, once the divine life is there in the flesh and Jesus in the incarnation, it necessarily follows organically that it's going to be carrying through, through to the resurrection. The resurrection is uh, an inescapable consequence of the incarnation, whatever comes in between. <laughs> um, and that's, that's really important. You know. So again, go, go deeper into the resurrection then. Yes. So, uh, as, uh, as Shane Claiborne, a young young Christian, has pointed out recently, if you d if you don't believe the resurrection, well, then yeah, don't be a Christian. You know, and and the literal resurrection, although what what the literal is, that's 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 worth uh, worth exploring. Um, even people like Andrew Harvey, uh, who's uh, understands Christianity very well, but considers himself more of a Hindu mystic, uh, he. Uh, he totally believes in, 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 the, in, the, in the literal resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus. So what, so what happens is, and we've, entered, we've spoken about this already in, in terms of the transformed consciousness, the transformed humanity. Um, at the moment of the resurrection, the body and soul, or the, you know, the entire humanity, 
put it that way, of Jesus is transformed by the Spirit and made eternal. Uh, one Franciscan professor said very well, Richard Ross points this out too, uh, at the moment, if we had been there at the resurrection, we wouldn't have seen some guy get out and <sighs> heave, a, heave a sigh of relief and walk away. <laughs> we would have seen a flash of light. And that's it. We would have just seen this humanity transformed, you know, pure energy, you might say. And it can take all different forms then, whatever it likes, as it did after the resurrection with the different appearances when they couldn't recognize him because he, he appeared differently. So the resurrected body is an, an, an incredible Incredible reality for us too. No one ever quotes the 1 Corinthians 15, the last section of that chapter, where it goes through the, the, the different traits and characteristics of the resurrected body that we will have ourselves, um, which St. Thomas Aquinas uh, 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 elaborated on as well. That you can leap from one end of the universe to the other in a second, that you can't suffer, you can't die. Uh, that you are, are radiant, you know, with clarity and agility, uh, it's it said, uh, and that it's, it's powerful. Uh, so th this is, um, that's what we mean. We don't mean the resuscitation of the corpse, but we do mean a bodily and a total human resurrection. It's not just, it's, uh, that, that, that is, that's, that's the seed of the transformation of the whole universe. The whole universe is, as St. Paul says in Romans 8, the whole universe is groaning in tribulation, waiting for the revelation of the children of God as we're transformed. The whole universe is transformed into a new heaven, into a new heavens and a new earth, somehow that we can't quite grasp yet. But it'll be through the transformation of our humanity, which is through the transformation of Jesus' humanity. That's the seed that's planted in, uh, and that's the omega point towards which we're moving in the evolution of the whole cosmos. And this is. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the famous Jesuit mystic right. and paleontologist, who's at the center of theological reflection again in the, in the church today. And these really are, in many ways, the central beliefs yes. of the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. The, the Trinity, um, the Holy Trinity, the Incarnation, Redemption, the Atonement, yeah. and the Resurrection. Yes, and... Uh, and we would see, you know, the Eucharist, the liturgical action, as uh, a mystical experience, uh, as a connection with, with the risen, resurrected humanity of Christ, which becomes re really present right there in the midst of our community, you know, in, in the, 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 the bread, uh, transformed the bread, bread and wine, um, because uh, everything is, 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 is connected to the body of Christ. And, but that, at that moment, the, uh, the elements, we believe, have, have uh, specially trans transformed an intense presence of Christ, uh, however we explain it, transubstantiation or other ways. Uh, but the point being that, that uh, Christ is, is intimately present, but Christ is already connected to the whole universe. Not only the people, but all things. All things were created for him to begin with, all things created through him and for him. But uh, Christ is all in all. Or as the end of the first chapter of the letter, the first chapter of Ephesians says, that the body of him who fills the universe in all its parts. Why doesn't anybody ever quote this? Who fills the universe in all its parts. Christ is all in all. So if Christ is all in all, that doesn't leave much out. Right. So he's already connected to everything and everyone. So it's no big deal to intensify that presence in the sacraments, for example. Not just the Eucharist, but all of the sacraments. And I know you had a question regarding yeah. the sacraments. It's so. How does the Roman Catholic get to experience these mysteries, like the sacraments? That, like, let's start with baptism. 
Yeah, well, as I said before, that's like the plugging into to the, to the Christ, uh, to the energy of Christ, to the Holy Spirit. And you become a member of the church, uh, a member of the people of God uh, through that. So it's, uh, you know, we're already, in a sense, children of God connected to Christ by, by our creation, by our birth, as, as I said earlier. Uh, uh, but uh, we uh, are especially Christified. We plug it in and, and, and are... Uh, are as traditional theology says, we receive the gifts of the Spirit, you know, those gifts of faith, hope, and love, and all those poured into us at that moment. It's one way of, uh, of looking at it, which is very powerful. Um, and, you know, if, of all the sacraments, you know, as a priest, I, admit, I administer, so many, administer so many sacraments of, of reconciliation or penance and anointing of the sick. And it really, really is a powerful moment. There really is an intense presence of Christ. Uh, for every everyone involved, you know the the one who receives and and the one who gives, uh, uh, and that's that's what's especially gratifying and 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 marvelous about about ministry, uh, and above all in in the in the Eucharist, what we call the Mass, uh, uh, it's uh, the great fathers of the Church in the first thousand years, they uh, and and since as well, their their marvelous discourses on on it's like it's like an initiation, right? You go from the the entrance to the church, then into the sanctuary, into the nave of the church. You listen to the readings, you get transformed, then you move into the sanctuary and the angels, and then the presence of Christ, and then the communion where there's total transformation. It's just a magnificent reality, which we don't, uh, we don't emphasize enough. Oh. Or we only emphasize the holy sacrifice of the mass in the Roman Catholic Church, kind of a reaction against the Protestant Reformation. But what about the meal? What about the wedding banquet? Uh, I mean, all, all, uh, the, all, uh, the sacrifice is there, Christ giving himself totally as he did on the cross uh, right at that moment uh, and into his resurrection. And we're participating in that. But that's also a banquet and that's also a meal. And that's also, so it's very rich. So dimensions. having been bap baptized at an early age, yeah. there was that next step. And it was, you know, it was a, as a young teenager, it was that pensive step like, now it's confirmation. Yeah, you're going to get confirmed or not. And, it, and it's like, I, for myself, I remember it's just like, now what? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, it, and it really was. At now what? After you were confirmed or before? No, before. Before. Right? It, be, there was, you know, there was some classes before which, which were great, but it, there was a mystery to it, and it's just like, okay, what's going to happen to me after this? Because obviously, with with baptism. I I wasn't yeah you were, I wasn't aware yeah so that's that's another issue yeah. you know is it, uh, the church began to have infant baptism to make sure that people were incorporated to Christ right away and mm -hmm. the concern about original sin and whether you're going to die without being baptized but ideally the people should be conscious adults you know you know mm -hmm. I mean ideally you know but mm -hmm. I understand infant baptism and I'm I'm not against it at all but um but uh, if a person is is, is has attained the age of reason by the time they're baptized as a special experience, I'm sure. Uh, but confirmation, you know, theologically, it's just what it says. It confirms baptism. In the early church, they were administered at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it was the bishop who did, uh, did the, uh, the, the confirming. But as more and more baptisms were, were celebrated, you know, more frequently, infant baptism, etc., it got separated. The bishop wasn't around that much, and, you know, the, the, the diocese got bigger, so they had to wait. For the confirmation until the till, till the bishop, and then then it got tied in. Oh, 
then make it a, then make it about let them be te teenagers and let them before they receive it and that kind of thing. So there, there's lots of intriguing theology there, but mostly it's you are receiving the confirmation of your baptism and whatever your age and there's a special aptitude I guess when you're when you're just entering adulthood, you are now a mature Christian and you're called to testify out in the world with the full power of the Spirit. So it really goes along with baptism and then the culmination is the Eucharist. So much so that the, you might know that the Eastern churches uh, give all three sacraments at once to babies. Hmm. Which now, theologically is, is perfect. Yes. But, but psychologically, well. <laughs> from my own experience, it was just like, when do I get to practice yeah. the, the communion? Mm -hmm. it was, right. And it was, you know, oh, those people can go and do it, but you're not ready yet. You, you have to wait. The first, the confirmation, it's like, okay, now's my turn. Now I can go. Right. Sometimes I think, uh, of course, this this could never happen. I'm not I'm not I'm not recommending it, but but sometimes I think we should wait to teach. To, you can't you can't you can't learn about religion until you're 18. Yeah, then they'll know it's something wow special, and it'll be an adult version that they'll get. <laughs> yeah. Because so oftentimes people grow up in college and they, they look back at the catechism they received and they think that's the child, kid's version is the whole thing. Yeah. Right. And they reject Very that. They think they're rejecting the faith, mm -hmm. which is terrible. Uh, so, so anyway, so there are pastoral issues that need to be. <laughs> no, it's, so, it, it's interesting you bring that up because there's in the Baha'i faith where you can't become a Baha'i until you're 18. Yeah. Right. So that, that growing up, and actually being able to embrace the faith, yeah, to actually more fully understand it, right. So if we, if we could, if we could, uh, ideally, you you would tailor it in such a way that people recognize, you know, uh, as they grow up, they get a, a more mature version. They're introduced, hopefully, to contemplative, deep contemplative prayer mm -hmm. early on, yes. even in grammar school. Mm -hmm. I've done that with the kids in the school that I uh, that I was uh, in, um, in the parishes that I was at. Uh, because people are ready to receive that deep uh, mm -hmm. message of prayer and that deep experience of prayer early on. Yeah, I know from my own experience, my daughter with contemplative meditation has been such a great gift for her. Yes. To be able to step outside of the situation and to, to go into that at any moment and say, you know what, let me step aside from this. Let me have this contemplative prayer. Yeah, so it's, it's a double dimension. You step aside from your ego self and your mm -hmm. usual patterns of reacting and judging and you know and feeling, and you're opening yourself up to the deeper deeper experience of whoever or whatever is is before you, including God within you and including yourself. Um, so that's those are the dimensions of contemplative prayer and contemplation as such. You're trying to really see deeply and experience deeply uh, whatever the reality is, reality itself, ultimately. Yes. I'm Reverend Rob Way of the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. We will return in a minute with Father Michael Holleran. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. We now return to our conversation of Catholicism with Father Michael Holler. Is it is it appropriate to say that what we first explored those 
mysteries of the Trinity, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, that those are the fundamental mysteries of the church. Yes. But what we've, we've just been discussing um, um, in terms of the sacraments, marriage, for example, certainly it begins with baptism and confirmation. Yes. There's, there's the penance, which you talked about, there's the Eucharist, um, there's holy orders, there's, a whole, there's seven sacraments. That those sacraments are ways for us to, in a sense, participate or experience those mysteries. Well, exactly, exactly. Those uh, sacraments are an interesting thing. You know, there are people in different Christian sects uh, debate how many there are. Uh, the best approach, I think, is seeing that everything is a sacrament. Ah. And, uh, in, in the broad sense, not, not the strict sense, theological sense. But, but everything is a means of contact with God. And God is hidden everywhere and in everything. And can speak to you in every event. Should be speaking to you in every event. Um, Christ himself, as one theologian says, Edward Schillebeck's back in the, in the, in the, back in the 60s, Christ is the sacrament of God. Christ is the eternal sacrament of God. Christ himself is a sacrament uh, where you meet God, obviously. Uh, but uh, to have a sacramental approach to life that you're meeting in, in, in the humblest of realities, material realities, you're meeting a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality, a spiritual presence. Um, but we in the Christian community, the Catholic community, experience these particular seven instances as being especially intense as I explained earlier, intense encounters where Christ, where Christ is truly is especially present uh, and especially acting. Uh, it's interesting, you know, the only time the word sacrament appears in the script in the New Testament in Greek is mysterion, so mystery, uh, is describing marriage. Paul unto Ephesians is describing marriage. this is Christ in this church. So you're encountering the mystery of Christ in this church in the mystery of the of the husband and wife. Uh, so. Uh, so it's always Christ you're encountering. Remember, Christ is all in all and everything and everywhere. So you're, you're encountering Christ everywhere. But these are especially privileged and intense and certified, <laughs> guaranteed uh, in, within the community mm -hmm. uh, moments of encounter with Christ. Now, I know you had a question about the saints. Yes. Yeah. Oh. One of the places, the, the place of the saints in the tradition and... Do you worship the saints? Well, uh, no, we don't worship the saints. We don't worship Mary either. Mary, who is the greatest of saints, we can say. Uh, we, we say in the creed that we believe in the communion of saints. So what do we mean by that? We mean that there is a communion of those who share Christ's life, whether in this life or beyond the grave, in the resurrected life, in the life of heaven, however uh, that's articulated. So whoever has gone before is risen in Christ, uh, maybe not bodily yet, but certainly alive in Christ after, after bodily death. Uh, so how, how can they not be active and being Christ-like in the, in the universe, you know, spreading joy and peace and help and love uh, to all their brothers and sisters who are still in travail here below? Uh, of course, uh, they're, they're the ones who, who, who we, the saints are those who, uh, whom we reverence, who do those, who do that, those things. People whose lives have been noticed, been accepted and certified as as really being transformed in Christ, they still are forces in the world. They still are forces in the universe. So they're active as Christ Himself is, and in Christ and as Christ, even they're His body. We're all His body. It's all one reality, and we're all members of one of another, as Paul says so beautifully. 
so how can we not care for each member, care for for the other members of the body? You know, uh, so it, it 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 just makes perfect sense. You know, to 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 understand these as as real real active forces. Right. So it's sort of it's an interesting thing because the Roman Catholic is making a distinction between worship, which is reserved yes. only for God, only yeah. for the Holy Trinity, and veneration, right. which seems to be almost like a communion or well, reverence, conversation. Yeah. Reverence. reverence for... for reverence just for, as you reverence yeah. your parents, you reverence yeah. your brothers and sisters. So what is worship? Well, worship is, is that, is like treya in Greek, which, which, which means that you're totally giving yourself to the ultimate reality. I see. Which is also Christ. You know, we worship Christ um, as the incarnate word. Uh, but we don't worship. Uh, we don't worship Mary because she's merely human. But she's uh, uh, the be- the most uh, realized human in our in our understanding and experience. One of the interesting um, elements of Roman Catholic community is this idea, not merely of the priest, the person consecrated into the service of the community of Very God well said, through the yes. community. Very correct? well said. Yes. And but beyond that, there be priests. There is the bishop and the archbishop. What are bishops? Okay, so uh, bishops, episcopos, uh, was is used in the New Testament. The pastoral letters uh, means an overseer, episcopos in Greek. Um, and in the in those er- letters, there's not a distinction between, between really priest and bishop. There's a there's a, a presbyterium, a group of elders. Mm-hmm. And remember, Paul laid his hands and pointed elders when he went around to the various communities. But very quickly, by, by the year 100, Ignatius of Antioch, the, 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 the martyr, who, the bishop who, bishop who was martyred in Rome uh, in, in the first decade of the second century, already in his writings, there's a clear delineation between deacons, priests, and bishops. So you already had that delineation of offices and, and functions. So uh, the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s in the Roman Catholic Church made perfect, made finally clear, if it wasn't before, that the bishop is simply the fullness of the priesthood. And the priests participate in a lesser to, to a lesser extent in that power and they teach, govern, and sanctify, as we often say. They assist the bishop. And deacons, likewise, uh, have, a, have a, a lesser uh, but b- beautiful participation. And they assist the priests. So it's, it's, it's a lovely interaction and intercommunion that goes on. There. But it's, it's very ancient. goes all the way back to the, to the beginning of the church, as I've just explained. Now, archbishops, well, that's just political. Right. That's just governmental. Same thing with cardinals? Well, let me get to that. Oh, okay. Metropolitans, archbishops, uh-huh. patriarchs, you know, they were major seas, major cities. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people, even Catholics, I think if they were asked, is are cardinals an essential part of Roman Catholicism in terms of its constitution? And they're not. And most people would say that they are, I believe. Yes. They think, oh, we can't do away with cardinals. I mean, that's like doing away with, 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 with the church, you know. Right. But it's not. For the first thousand years, it wasn't to the 11th century, for the first thousand years, there was no such thing as a cardinal. Hmm. Now, it, it, it's very clever and very useful. I, I, I admire it greatly. What it is is cardinals are generally uh, major seas across the world now. It's become very international, rightfully so. Um, but they're each assigned a church in Rome Mm-hmm. As their as their little church that they when they come to Rome that's their that's their cardinalatial church. So when the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, dies, it's the clergy of Rome that elect a new bishop, the cardinal, because ah, they each have a church. A church, right? It's very clever. <laughs> oh, okay, it's very clever. That's yeah. very because good, it yes. should it should actually be the the local church that elects its own bishop. I wish we had that again. You know, 
it's become so centralized now. There really isn't a, a top-heavy mm. bureaucracy now. Everyone, just about everyone, would admit with the Curia and Rome, where where Rome appoints all the bishops across the world. That that's not necessarily necessarily the best way, and not necessarily the way mm. it has to be. But it is the way it is now. So so all cardinals and archbishops are bishops, and yes. it's really well, yeah. Pope John the twenty third, Saint John the twenty third, now just decreed that all. All cardinals should be bishops, and there have been a few exceptions like de Lubac and uh, Avery Dulles. And, right. Uh, but, uh, but in the past, you could be a cardinal priest or a cardinal deacon, you know, belonging to a particular church without being a bishop, mm -hmm. but you could be a cardinal. But now, now it's preferred that they all be bishops. And you mentioned the fact, you mentioned Pope. Pope as the bishop of Rome. Yes. I know that. Patriarch of the West. My dear brother here has a question yeah. regarding the Pope. So. What is the Pope's place yes. within the Roman Catholic tradition? I, I, I like uh, to speak again of, of uh, Ignatius of Antioch, I do, whom I just evoked you know, in his letters. He refers to the Church of Rome as presiding in charity and as presiding in charity over the community because uh, Peter was the prince of the apostles. Prince. Peter was the leader of the apostles and he settled eventually, finally in Rome and was martyred there. So his successor was considered to be the head of the group of bishops presiding in charity over the community. And it's clear from the letters of, for example, Pope Clement in the first century to the Church of Corinth and to the bishop there, that the, he, the, the authority of the Bishop of Rome was accepted as, as, uh, as preeminent in that first community. So that's just continued. I, as I say, it's, it's really gotten a little top heavy and then all the, the, the all, it's gotten the, oh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, Temporal authority uh, with the papal states and all of that, and then the pope becomes a soldier and a king. And oh, that was uh, I'm glad we're, we're we're rid of that. Uh, but the last hundred years, certainly, we've had uh, very exemplary figures, and uh, and it's actually very convenient and and useful to have a separate city state like the Vatican, so they're not beholden to political party right. powers around mm -hmm. them. So that's actually a wonderful, you know, providential thing. But the pope is the bishop of Rome, and. Because of that con connection with Peter and all through the centuries, he presides in charity. Uh, he's, uh, how much power he exerts and how as a political thing that has changed over the centuries. But as a, as a spiritual function, as a sign and center of unity, as, as the Second Vatican Council, I believe, said, uh, he's a very beautiful. Uh, and I believe that that could, should and could continue uh, when, as Christian bodies perhaps come together, to still have that 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 central spiritual symbolic source of unity there it would be very very beautiful. Let's go to one little aspect that yes, uh, of the Pope's life. This. Yes, because it's a, <laughs> maybe the only controversial element yeah. of the his uh, the Pope's position, and that is this idea of infallibility, right, right. the inability of the Pope to make mistakes well, on religious and moral issues. Not even okay. Not even. It's only when it's expressly stated that this view of faith and morals is being defined as infallible. Ex cathedra, that's yeah. the phrase that's well, used. Uh, yes, and, and that's happened only once. In 2000 years? No, in, since it was defined as, as a doctrine ah. you know, in, you know, in, in 1870. Now, people rightfully point out that there was largely a political move because the, we were trying to affirm the authority of the Pope against Garibaldi and the unification of Italy and the loss of the Papal States, and it was very fraught. Uh, politically, probably would never have been, might not have ever been defined if it weren't for that. Nonetheless, taking it in itself, and the fact that it's been so sparingly used, it was for the Assumption of Mary in 1950 by Pius XII. Um, what is not 
to be what is not to 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 uh, to, to believe what's so hard to believe that Jesus who's dynamically and directly and organically and immediately present to his whole church and to everybody in it would not be there for the head of the church at a most solemn moment, which is very rarely invoked. Why is that so incredible? It's it's, it's quite, it would be astonishing if it weren't the case. But we shouldn't have creeping infallibility where everything this or that Pope says must be infallible because this or that. No, 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 no. It's... uh, we have to accept the fact that there are mistakes made, you know, <laughs> as you can see in the lives of popes, in the life of the church, uh, mistakes in scripture, you know, this is, this is, we're humans. Yes, exactly. And that's part of the beauty that's of it, really that right. God stays with us through thousands of years of warlike, you know, tribes, you know, until we finally get to blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the poor and the meek and the merciful. Uh, God's uh, wonderful mercy to stay, stick with us through, through all that. Get his name attached to us, even though we're don't worthy. We're not worthy of it. <laughs> uh, but that's the that's the the bounty and and the mercy of God in Christ. A very, you know, this has been really, really, really deep, incredibly deep. Let me ask you a question that's um, that maybe not as deep um, to some people, though I think to some extent there is a depth to it, and that is the idea of holidays. The Catholic Church has religious holidays. Oh, sure. right? These moments of commemoration, if you will. Of well, these. as do all religions. Yeah. Absolutely right. What are, what are the major holidays in the Catholic Church? Well, the, the, the major holidays are, are, are Christmas and Easter, and then Pentecost is the final. And, uh, you know, some of these follow, follow the, you know, pa- Passover and, and Feast of Weeks and Feast of Booths, which follow some of the, some of the uh, Jewish uh, timetable as well. But because Jesus died at Passover and he's our new Passover, etc., as Paul says. Uh, so it's it's the coming of Christ into the world, uh, which, which we celebrate Christmas. at Christmas, and and the church put it at the time of the solstice in winter, even though he probably wasn't born then. We don't know when he was born, but as a symbol of the fact that light is now coming into the world, and the days are growing longer, so the light is coming into the world, and the preparation for that is Advent. For, the church you know, for many centuries has put you know four weeks of Advent to prepare for it with beautiful liturgy and special practices, but above all, it's it's Easter. That was the original. Feast uh, and then the Holy Week, uh, the celebration of Christ's uh, Passion and Resurrection. That's the primary feast. And then celebrating all 50 days of Easter, like uh, the 50 days that leads up to Pentecost, which is what Pentecost means 50, even in the Jewish tradition. Uh, so that Pentecost happened on Pentecost, uh, the Jewish Pentecost, uh, uh, the coming of the Spirit and the sending out of the apostles into the world and the power of Christ. Uh, so those are the those are the main holidays, and then we celebrate Saints' Days, you know, com- com- to commemorate these these uh, these these centers of force and, and energy and joy and peace in the universe that these people are still in our lives. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I will always remember that my mother always knew the feast of Saint Joseph. Yes. because I was named after St. Joseph. Uh-huh, That's right. what Jose meant, right? Okay, so right. on that day, there was almost like a mini birthday party for me. So I never really, it didn't, I didn't care that it was St. Joseph. I just cared for the cake I was going to have when <laughs> <Yeah>. I got <laughs> home. Well, so look at Santa Claus with Christmas presents, you know, there's a way of celebrating. Yeah. A, I'm not as down on, on, on the secular. Uh, I think Santa Claus is a great image of God the Father for, for little kids. Not to mention that he's named after St. Nicholas, who's the bishop who through... Uh, bags of goodies in t- through the window of poor people. Uh, that's where we get Saint Santa Claus coming down with bags of goodies down a chimney. Uh, so mm-hmm. who knew, right? That's wonderful, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I know you have a really so interesting question. Most of the enduring 
tr traditions, faith traditions, have sacred scriptures. What are the uh, sacred scriptures of the Roman Catholic religion? Well, as you know, there's some discussion among the Christian denominations about what's inspired, what's not inspired. So uh, all Christians accept the Jewish scriptures, the ones that Jews accept, the uh, Torah, and plus the wisdom literature, uh, the, to an extent, the ones that the, the, our Jewish brothers and sisters also accept, and uh, uh, they call the Ketuvim, the writings, and then the prophets, hmm? uh, writings of the prophets. But we, in the Christian tradition, we accept the, the writings of the New Testament. Um, and there was some debate, should we include the book of Revelation, the apocalypse? Uh, it wasn't until the end of the fourth century that it was, the canon was definitively uh, defined. And it includes uh, some of the, like the book of wisdom, the book of Sirach, you know, some, some of the, uh, some sections of the book of Daniel and Esther, etc. cetera, um, that, uh, uh, that are, are not accepted by, by Jews or Protestants. Uh, I, again, I, I try to approach it well, A, as we've already said, you know, it's the words of God through the words of, of humans, you know, so it passes through our own, it's not dictated. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you expect all the, the clouds and the obfuscations and the insensitivities of, of humanity to come through. That's why I meant God is so merciful sticking with us and, and, and getting, getting his name attached to what we were doing, even though it was, wasn't always admirable. Um, uh, so inspiration, you know, revelation, in a sense, I like to look about it, maybe not feel in strict theological terms, but in terms of degrees, like, like everything is a sacrament. Well, God speaks through great, great, great literature, great, great art, great, you know, the works of other religious traditions, too. Uh, we might say, well, not quite the same intensity. Well, okay, okay. But the important thing is to recognize both the limitations and the ineffable beauty of the scriptures. And for example, in the monastery, we, we, we chant, you know, hours and hours of psalms every day, and they never get old. Mm -hmm. And one of the monks pointed out to me once, if we were, if we were reciting Faulkner or something, you know, every day, every day, we'd, we'd get deathly sick of it. Mm -hmm. Because there really is a power and a, a, a presence and a, years and years of, of centuries of people singing this and Christ himself singing it, Christ himself singing it now with us. As St. Augustine says, Christ is singing, you know, in us as our head and for us as our priest. Uh, it's, it's always Christ that's working. And we are simply being transformed into him. And everything we do, uh, everything we do, whether it's religious or secular, in the end, religious and secular, sacred and profane, natural, supernatural, those distinctions completely fall away because Christ is all in all. It's interesting because you, you, um, you chanted for years and years and years when you were a, a yeah about five hours a day for 22 years it's and, and, and that connect I, I i don't know what it is but within that the those gregorian chants yeah. it's it's so alluring yeah absolutely. but it's it's like it's like a coming to home yes yeah and <clears throat> i can listen to that continuously me too it, it's do you it, want me to Oh, if yes, yes, I love you. I have this. Uh, it's Psalm one. It's Psalm one one hundred and twenty-two. That's about going home, really. Uh, I rejoice when I heard them say, "Let's go to God's house." <laughs> it's the opening line. May let peace reign in your walls and in and, and in your palaces, peace. And it's a, it's a beautiful uh, from Letare Sunday. We call it the middle of Lent. This is from that. Uh, That's why it begins with "I rejoice, rejoice Sunday." So. Uh, 
this that's the text and this is the uh, chant <laughs> it's about two minutes Thank you for taking us there. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. And so many of the scriptures, so many of these chants, nobody knows who wrote them. I mean, the Spirit wrote them. Christ mm-hmm. wrote them. You know? Yes. But it's that it invokes yeah. something on a, on, a, on a soul level. Yes, that's right. So i got to ask the question. I know what it was for me to become a reverend. It was, mm-hmm. What was it for you to become a priest? Well, it's certainly a call. It's certainly a call that I, re- I be first be- became aware of reading the biography of the Curie of Ars, who was a French priest in the 19th century, when I was 13. And it's never left me. Uh, so much so that even when I left the monastery, I didn't leave the priesthood, as many monks do when they leave the monastery. But I, the, my call to the priesthood antedated that. So it survived it. And I felt tremendous fulfillment in the ministry as a priest in my whole, every day for my whole life. Why did you become a monk? So, uh, I became a monk uh, at the age of 22 because when I was a Jesuit, I discovered the interior life, the life of God, the deep life of prayer through Ignatian, St. Ignatian, mm-hmm. meditation, spiritual exercises, the Jesuit, uh, the Jesuit masterpiece. Um, but I just, when I discovered just how huge it was and how alluring it was and how you know, personal it was, it was a call as well, um, that I said, I just have to leap into, to the, into the abyss of silence and solitude and find God there. 
So, you... I, so I did for 22 years. <laughs> but then I, I felt midlife. It was kind of a midlife crisis in both a spiritual and a psychological sense. Uh, I felt called to, to minister in the world and share the gifts and, and uh, continue growing in that way and serving in that way. What, it's a, to me, I, I know that to me, mysticism and the interior life are almost like interchangeable phrases. Um, and in fact, what we have been exploring with you is not merely the Roman Catholic tradition, right. but the Roman Catholic tradition, which is so vast and complex and rich, from, in many ways, this deeply mystical perspective, right. this, this perspective of the inner life. What is mysticism? Yeah, so what is a mystic? Uh, Richard Rohr, has, as always, has a very good definition. He says, it's simply one who experiences instead of just knows. Mm. Conceptually, mm. in other words, he doesn't just recite the creed or accept the you know believe on that on that one level, but the faith is deep into the extent where they actually ex we can experience God. You, you know, you you experience what you're talking about. You don't just believe that Christ is God and then you experience it. You don't just believe that He's the bridegroom of the church. You experience that. Uh, so everyone is called to be a mystic, and that's what heaven is. When we're, we're all we all become <laughs> if you're not already, <laughs> we all become mystics in the sense of experiencing God uh, by our very creation. I want to go back to the theme we've been giving from the start. Everyone's related to God. Everyone's created in the image of God, as we say, traditionally. Um, so we're all geared. We're all made for it. We're all uh, constituted to experience God. That's what we're made for. So much so that one contemporary mystic, Bernadette Roberts, uh, says a mystic is just a mature human being. <laughs> in other words, in her view, one cannot be a, mat a really mature human being that is to say, fully developed as all the potential of what a human can be and should be without being consciously united to God. Every moment of Yes, living from God. And it becomes more and more habitual, what's called the mystical marriage by, by St. John of the Cross and others, where you know, you're constantly in living from that. It's a continual, it's a, your normal consciousness. You've been listening to our series, Open Heart Conversations, offering dialogues from the world's religions and spiritual traditions, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please visit us in Manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 